Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, chaplain, professor, a writer, and a speaker, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and I'm glad to introduce you to today's show. We're going to talk about what took place on the cross of Calvary. And so in the church, we use the word atonement, and we talk about the death of Christ on the cross. But what was actually happening when he died, what was happening both to Christ and through him, that's what we want to talk about today. So Aaron, can you describe for us the events of the cross from a historical perspective first, and then we'll follow up after that with a theological discussion of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the the historical event is tied to the theological implications of the event. Roman crucifixion was a horrendous death. It wasn't Christ of course was not the only person ever to be crucified. Many many people were crucified uh through human history. Uh, there's records going back as far at least as far as 600 BC that uh, depict crucifixions at the hands of various governors. Basically, it would start off with a whipping. So the victim uh, or the criminal would be scourged or whipped. They would then be given their cross beam, the, 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 the horizontal aspect of the cross, and that would be dragged to the site of the execution. At the place of the execution, the, the horizontal portion of the cross would already be installed in the ground. The um, victim would then be nailed to the the, the cross, uh, sorry, the, the vertical aspect of the, the 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 shaft of the cross was already installed in the ground, and then the uh, victim would be nailed uh, to the the horizontal uh, part of the cross and fastened about three meters above the ground to the cross. Mm. Uh, their feet would then be nailed into the vertical shaft. I actually have in my office uh, a plaster cast of a heel bone from a first century crucifixion. It has the nail through it Mm. that was discovered by archeologists in in the last few decades. I can't remember the exact date. And that's further evidence of the way that victims were fastened to the cross. Sometimes you see pictures of ropes and maybe there was times when they were roped to the cross, but the normative fashion would be to have them nailed uh, to the cross. And then just as Christ had a, a sign placed above his head declaring that he was the king of the Jews, it was normal actually for criminals to have their crimes put on a sign above their head so people could see why they were being crucified. Crucifixions would often Uh, take place over several hours, and many times the victims would die of blood loss or suffocation. And if it was being delayed for too long, as we see depicted in the cross event, uh, they would take an iron club and they would break the legs, and that would cause the body to sag, and the uh, person on the cross would die. Christ, of course, was exempt from that because uh, no bone of the Passover lamb uh, would be broken, Mm -hmm. according to biblical prophecy. That's a depiction of Roman pers- of Roman uh, crucifixion, and it's it's accurate to the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Christ. Now, the the gospels also specifically add a detail, and that is that his blood was fully shed. So when the spear was pierced into his side, all that came out was water hmm. or serum, I guess you could call it in more scientific language. But this is important. So we have a historical event. We have the crucifixion of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. His blood is completely drained from his body. And this is where the historical aspect of the crucifixion is wedded to the theological notion of blood atonement. Christ's work on the cross was inextricably linked to atonement theology. He he is being presented to us in the Gospels as one whose blood is atoning for sin. And this is really the subject I wanna Mm -hmm. look at from several different angles. What was Christ doing on the cross, apart from 
the beatings, apart from the humiliation. By the way, he would have been, contrary to imagery in Christian art, he would have been crucified naked, which made it especially humiliating Mm -hmm. for a man to be exposed like that in public. But what was he doing there, and what was he actually accomplishing on the cross? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's obvious that it is an important event of Christian history, and it's an event filled with a lot of uh, fulfilled prophecies and whatnot. And so how does the crucifixion as an event then fit into God's redemptive work in history? So the crucifixion we know happened about 2,000 years ago, uh, after roughly 33 years of ministry uh, on earth through our Lord Jesus Christ, but its significance ties right back to the beginning of time. So Genesis 3, we have human beings sinning and rebelling against God. We all know that. And God cannot overlook sin. So this is very important for us to be reminded that God, God is both holy, in other words, his standard is perfection, and he is just. He is the judge. And so he cannot, in his character, overlook sin. He can't just say, you know what, I'm just going to forgive sin. We're called to forgive others of their trespasses against us because we have trespassed as well. But God can't just forgive sin out of thin air. People think God can do whatever he wants. Well, God is always constrained, if you will, by his character. God cannot sin, for example. God cannot cease to exist. God cannot cease to be holy. God cannot cease to be omnipresent. He certainly can manifest himself locally, but he cannot cease to be omnipresent. He cannot cease to be omniscient. So sin is is something that is an offense to the holiness of God and the justice of God. So God cannot overlook sin. Sin must be, must, mm-hmm. M-U-S-T, must be punished due to the holiness and justice of God. So that's the foundation upon which we have our theology of atonement. Then we have a sacrifice. So God permits in various sacrificial incidents in the scripture, a substitute to be made to expiate. Now that's not a word we use very often, but he uses the sacrifice to expiate the sinner. And expiation is the removal of their guilt. So we have a sinner, we have an offender, we have someone that has offended the holiness of God, that has violated the laws of God. Something else is put in that place, and their sin is expiated. Expiation is not turning a blind eye to sin, and it's not forgiving from the heart. It requires that the offense be punished. So Christ, we know, ultimately expiated our sin. He was punished on our behalf. Under the old covenant system, and even before that, we have animals, unblemished animals, to symbolize in their physicality innocence or purity, young animals, valuable animals, being sacrificed for atonement. Famously, we have in Exodus the blood over the doorposts when God is redeeming them from Egypt. We have grain sacrifices, which are appropriate in certain circumstances. And that ultimately leads up to the final sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice, as the book of Hebrews Mm -hmm. calls him, and that is the Lamb of God, the one that is called the Lamb of God, who is Christ. So the the sequence is we have sin Mm -hmm. against the backdrop of God's holiness and justice. We have a sacrifice and a theology of atonement to expiate sin, and there has to be innocence there, and after endless sacrifices of mm-hmm. oxen and sheep and doves, etc. Christ becomes the Lamb of God, the final and ultimate sacrifice for sin. So we have the cross event takes place, talk about the necessity of it. We talk about expiation. Now this word atonement, what actually happened to Christ on the cross mm-hmm. when he died? So believe it or not, Christians have not always agreed on this throughout history. And there have been at least five dominant atonement theories at various points in time. These atonement theories include uh, first the example theory. So mm-hmm. it's called the example theory of the atonement, which basically focuses on the, the humanity of Christ that Christ was setting an example in his humanity of, Mm -hmm. for instance, love and selflessness. Uh, 
Then there's the moral influence theory, which focuses a bit more on the divinity of Christ, which basically says in Christ's sacrifice as God, he is influencing our morality and he's demonstrating ultimate morality by acting in a moral way, by doing something that's incredibly Mm -hmm. sacrificial and generous and gracious and benevolent. For many years, a view was taught, I believe through the time of the medieval church called the ransom theory, Mm -hmm. which asserted that Christ's death on the cross was effective in paying off the devil or paying off Satan for uh, our sin. The idea is that we were we were in captives to Satan, mm-hmm. and Christ bought us back. He paid a ransom to Satan uh, through his death, so that he could rightfully, in a sense, reown us. Mm-hmm. The satisfaction view is a fourth view of the atonement, which teaches that Jesus essentially does penance for sin. It's very much tied to a Roman Catholic view mm-hmm. that Jesus Christ was put on the cross as a means of penance, as a, as a means of uh, showing contrition on our behalf for our sin. Now, if you think about these views, the example view, the moral influence view, the ransom view, and the uh, satisfaction view, there are kernels of truth in each of those. Christ was demonstrating his yep. love for us. Christ was demonstrating God's he was setting a moral example for us. He was demonstrating God's love for us. He did conquer the devil and the demonic realm in his work on the cross. But the view that I believe is orthodox, the view that we need to hold to is what's called the penal substitutionary atonement view. We could abbreviate it PSA, penal substitutionary atonement. This is the view that Christ was punished uh, for the sins of those he would redeem, that he becomes the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. So this, again, is built off our theology of God. So if you have a high view of God's holiness and a high view of God's justice, you have to conclude the cross has to be more than Jesus setting a good example. The cross has to somehow appease the holiness and the justice of God, which demands a penalty be paid for for sin based upon his justice and his wrath. It's based upon an understanding of our anthropology that we are actually sinners, that we're incapable of dying in our own place, that our sin is is deep and wide and it's innate Mm -hmm. and it has to be resolved in some... um, it, It cannot be resolved by any human effort. So it has to be resolved outside of us. And also that there is a standard flowing out of God's holiness. God has established a standard. He's established a law whereby we must live and we have violated God's law. So if you break it down, penal substitutionary atonement, the word penal emphasizes that Christ bore the full force Mm -hmm. of God's wrath for sin. He was penalized for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. It's substitutionary in that, think of the word substitute, and that the innocent is subbed in for the guilty. Yep. Uh, maybe a, a catchy way of saying this is, is to say that we did the crime and he did the time, right? We're, he's being substituted for us. And the word atonement, uh, which appears both in the Old Covenant Scriptures and the New Covenant Scriptures, the meaning of those words is essentially covering. Mm-hmm. And it's a covering, not in the sense of a cover-up. The atonement's not a cover-up. The atonement, in the atonement, the penalty can no longer be required because the punishment for the sin has been paid. And the benefit goes to the transgressor. So the transgressor, the sinner, who's sinned against God, who's violated his holiness, who has violated his law, mm-hmm. who is subject, justly subject to his wrath. Mm-hmm. So it's very important for us to understand in a culture that doesn't seem to even value uh, true punishment or retribution yeah. for, for, for any sins or crimes today, that God's holiness demands he cannot overlook it. And so in, in the atonement, the benefit goes to the transgressor in that 
based upon the work of the substitute, the sin has actually been paid. So let me let me read some Bible passages to help people to see this in Scripture. Right out of the gates, John chapter 1, verse 29. This is John the Baptist speaking, where he says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of the first century listeners would have understood he's hearkening back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, to the Mosaic Code, to the sacrifice of the innocent sheep or lamb for the sinner. He's presenting to the world the final lamb. John 3.17, most people know John 3.16, but John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Now, this is not to be read as because there was nothing condemnable about us. We're already condemned. Yeah, the law, right? But in order that the world might be saved through him. So salvation is through Christ, specifically through his atoning work, not his moral sermons, not just his message or his healings, but through the actual work of Christ. Uh, Matthew 20, verse 28, the Bible says, even as the Son came not to be served, which speaks to his ministry and his morality, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's a clear reference to atonement. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and following, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Another way of saying that is he was sacrificed for the sinner. For one cannot, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But it would still be rare, is, mm-hmm. is Paul's point there. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you might think, well, that kind of points to more of the the moral example view that he's just being really loving. Okay, he is being loving. That's true. It is an, a, an incredible aspect of love. But verses 9 and 10 go on to be more explicit in terms of fleshing out an atonement theology, where it says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Not by by, by his example, but by his blood. Much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This reminds us that God is a wrathful God, and we need to accept that. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't cringe at that. God is a wrathful God. You have to preach the wrath of God. You have to preach God's judgment against sin. Otherwise, an offer of salvation doesn't make any sense. By the way, Christ could have been hung, but then his blood wouldn't have been shed. Mm. So yes. even in, in this specific mode of his death, the Holy Father ensured that the blood of the eternal Son would be fully shed. So that's why we talked earlier about Roman crucifixion, not just because it's it's gross and gives us an appreciation for his suffering, although it does all of that, but it helps us to understand that it was a particular means of death that ensured that his blood would be shed for the sins of the world. And then verse 10 of that same passage, again, this is Romans 5, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So the, the death of Christ on our behalf also interestingly provides us with access to the life of Christ, which is eternal and glorious. Mm-hmm. I'll read a couple more. Uh, Ephesians 1, 2, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Again, it was a loving act, but it was more than a moral example. Mm. It was a, a sacrifice to God. What does that mean? To the God that demands that there's a penalty paid for sin, for offending his holiness. If you have a reduced view of God, it almost makes God sound kind of, oh, he's arrogant. Who does he think he is? He's God. He's in a category all by himself. He deserves honor. He deserves glory. He can ask for it, he can demand it, and he can certainly ask that his holiness be recognized Mm -hmm. and that people obey him. And then 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Paul is writing that uh, several decades after the church was, was founded, and it harkens back to what John stated right out of the gates, John the Baptist stated when Christ uh, was baptized just prior to Christ's baptism. He he indeed is the Lamb 
of God. He is the final sacrifice. And again, while we did the crime and therefore should do the time, Christ did the time. Christ received the punishment in his own body on the tree for our sin. Mm-hmm. Now, because the cross is so central to the Christian faith, obviously this gets attacked all the time. I remember years ago, a pastor in Ontario attacking penal substitutionary atonement. And we, I think, maybe even podcasted about that. So it is important. Some of our listeners might be listening thinking, this is a lot of theological chat. It does it really matter. And of course, it, it really matters when you start drawing out the implications of it. I think this next question maybe will resonate even more so because it it's one that comes up often, which is what in his atonement did he accomplish in terms of the scope? So, or that we could say the extent of the atonement. Yeah. Well, uh, I think it would be important if you're just tuning into this podcast to, to listen to the last one, because there we talk about uh, the biblical view of election. Everyone has a doctrine of election, I, I um, argued, mm-hmm. but people have a different view <clears throat> as to um, how that works, who initiates it. And I would say it's clear in the scripture that God's the one that initiates that and and decrees um, in his sovereign decrees and in his work. So all of these doctrines are are linked and they, they all affect the other. But the historic debate that many have entered into with regard to the atonement. So Orthodox Christians don't, don't deny that there's an atonement that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would argue that Orthodox Christians should never deny a penal substitutionary view True. of atonement. That is the, the Orthodox view of atonement. But many would ask, well, is, is there, are there limitations to the atonement? Was it limited in its, its intention or was it unlimited in its intention? Or, or, do, or is that even the proper way to think of the atonement? Yeah. So I want to offer a few thoughts on that. I want to speak, first of all, to the potential of the atonement. So it's really important that we guard the potential of the the atonement, meaning that we declare that the work of Christ on the cross is sufficient in and of itself for all people. There's, It's really important that we never imply or insinuate that there's anything inadequate or insufficient about the atonement of Christ. This is important because... Uh, Christ did not waste his time on the cross. Uh, there was no, there would be, there cannot be any extra suffering required of Christ to pay for the sins of more people. Mm-hmm. There wasn't like a, uh, we shouldn't think of the atonement as sort of some theoretical thing that's sort of a waste of time. Well, it's, it's sort of out there. He, he did an amazing thing, but it doesn't actually ac- accomplish much in, in space and time. Nor was um, any of his suffering or his time on the cross wasted. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of maybe speaking to both sides of the question, limited or unlimited. I would say nothing about it was inadequate, and nor was any of his suffering or his time wasted on the cross, it had a purpose attached to it. Mm-hmm. So it's better to think, I believe, of the atonement of Christ rather than using language of limited or unlimited. It's better to to tie the our our doctrine of atonement to the question of purpose or the question of intention, to focus on its ability and its efficacy. It's in other words, its capacity and its purposeful intentionality. So what was the purpose of the atonement? Well, I believe if you have an election doctrine, and everyone has one, that it should be understood to be the intention of the atonement should be that it is for those who would be redeemed by grace. So a couple couple thoughts on this. When, When we apply the word limited to the atonement of Christ, uh with regard to its intention, it's limited in its intention. I think that's inconsistent a little bit and perhaps even unnecessary. I say it's inconsistent because everything God does, because God has a will, a divine sovereign will about him, God has an intention about him, it makes me uncomfortable to label uh, anything that God does with any word that implies a deficit, which limited can in some contexts imply. Yeah. Plus, uh, 
when we talk about, when we use language like limited or unlimited lingo, frankly, I think it's it's unnecessary rhetoric when you already have a doctrine of election, which addresses the idea of God's intention and mm-hmm. which addresses the idea of God's will and which addresses based upon a doctrine of God's sovereignty, his eternal decrees, what he has deter- what he has decreed will be. Now, some will argue that if it was unlimited, for example, God would have to punish the same sin twice. So that's one of the challenges to an, an unlimited doctrine. That if, he, if it's unlimited, in other words, if we think of the atonement as a sin by sin or sinner by sinner act by Christ, so Christ is dying for all of your specific sins or Christ yep. is dying sinner by sinner, then if he's already punished Christ, if the Father has already punished Christ or penalized Christ for the sin of the sinner or for the sins of the sinner, mm-hmm. same thing really, yep. then for that sinner then to be consigned, consigned to eternal damnation and have to expiate his own sins or pay for his own sins again is is problematic. Well, that that would be maybe a tempting direction to take this conversation, but again, I, th- I think it's better to discuss the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of its its particular purpose in the against the backdrop of the whole of God's redemptive work, predestination, election, glorification, justification, sanctification, all of this. So this is really key. The way I think of the atonement is not so much in terms of limited or unlimited lingo, because I already have an election doctrine. I think of the atonement in terms of application. So the atonement, we, I, I think it's it's sensible to to understand as we look at history. So Christ died roughly two thousand years ago, and we could say he atoned for sin. But you weren't therefore born with your sins atoned for. Right. You weren't. Your sins weren't already previously preemptively forgiven until God justifies you. So the atonement has to be applied for it to be effectual. This is really important. The atonement has to be applied to the sinner by God against the backdrop of all of God's redemptive work, lest you might fall prey to the idea that you know, you're born with your sins already atoned for because it's limited in scope and therefore he died for your sins and therefore you're born with your sins forgiven. You can go back and forth talking about it's limited nature or unlimited nature, but if you already have a doctrine of election and you know then that the the intention of God is to redeem his elect, then let's focus on its, its application. So when Christ's atoning work happened 2,000 years ago, your particular sins, my particular sins, were not, I'll emphasize this again, were not atoned for until they were applied his atonement was applied to my life at a particular point in history in God's act of justifying me and saving me. So in this respect, it's better to speak of the scope of election in that God is applying it. It's sufficient for the sins of all men and women, but it's efficient, meaning it's only applied to those that God has set his sights on and chooses to redeem. And by the way, even even in an election, even even with our uh, doctrine of election, mm-hmm. we need to understand that election doesn't mean you're saved. Election means you will be saved. So if you are one of God's elect, you aren't actually saved until you're saved. God's intention sure. is to save you, but you're not saved until you're saved. Uh, like you're not justified until you're justified kind of thing. Exactly. Right. We don't want, it, it, I don't want to get too far off here into the weeds, but uh, some might argue based upon a radical understanding of atonement, if they have an unlimited view of its atoning work, that ultimately, well, because if they say that Christ literally in his work on the cross paid for the individual list of sins and for the individual list of sinners that would live throughout history, that you wind up with a universal, um, universalist conclusion mm-hmm. that every single person will ultimately be in heaven. So while we must 
believe that Christ was actually atoning for our sins on the cross, if we have a doctrine, a robust doctrine of election behind us, we know that it will be applied or it will be efficient mm-hmm. for those that God has set his sights on. And it, it there's nothing, there's no deficit in it. It's sufficient if God God wouldn't do this. He's not like adding numbers to his 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 um uh previous intentions. He's not like adding extra elect people to his to his uh sovereign plan. But if he were to do that, Christ wouldn't have to get back on the cross and suffer for another hour or two mm-hmm. hours or shed even more blood. What we we must we must guard the sufficiency yep. of the atoning work of Christ for the sins of all people. But we also need to emphasize its effectiveness or its mm-hmm. efficiency. And that occurs when God applies it to the account of the sinner in space and time. Now, I want to kind of throw out a few ideas here. Um, some will argue that they'll still spend much time uh, fixated on the, the notion of a limited atonement uh, based upon passages like John 10, 11. So John 10, 11 says, I am the good shepherd, and the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Well, he most certainly has done that. But one might ask, well, if the sheep are already part of the sheepfold, they're no longer goats, or to use other imagery, they're no longer aliens and strangers, mm-hmm. they're part of the household of God. Is is this passage actually trying to add to our theology of an atonement in the sense of informing whether we should mm-hmm. hold a limited or unlimited view. And I and I, I think it would be a stretch yeah. for us to say this this is your this is your verse to prove a limited atonement. On the other hand, we have John three sixteen. Um, you know, for God so loved the world, whoever believes in him should not perish. The Bible also talks about God desiring all men to be saved. The Bible talks about God desiring all men to repent. So people are like, well, there, there, there's a there's my there are my proof texts for an unlimited view of the uh atonement. But we must understand that these passages are not speaking of the atonement in particular, but they're reminding us that an invitation to repent has gone out into the world to repent of sin, and they're reminding us of the desire of God for all to repent, because God is not just holy and just, he's also loving and merciful. Mm-hmm. So this is where people seem to get confused. This seems to conflict in many people's minds. Yeah. How can you say God elects, God, God's purpose and atonement is to ultimately apply it to the elect, but at the same time argue that God desires for all people everywhere to be saved and desires for all people to uh, repent. Again, I would commend you to the previous podcasts. I fleshed some of that out. Mm-hmm. But I want people to see, and this is really, really important, that an invitation to believe and repent does not imply the capacity to receive the invite or to repent mm-hmm. without a sovereign work of God. Let me say that again. If we see in the Bible an invitation to repent, that does not imply that you have the capacity to do that. You may think, that sounds kind of strange. Well, not really, because the purpose of the invitation is to highlight your sin and the need for grace. So if, if I could give you another example, it would be the law. Who among us would argue, what Christian would ever argue that any other Christian can perfectly obey God's, God's mm-hmm. commands? We all know we all know we can't. We all know that, that there's, a, there's a law code that God has given. There are standards he's placed in front of us. And throughout, especially the old covenant, it became quite obvious, these endless laws, people, they were our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. They were reminding us of our inadequacy. Like there's, no, matter, no matter how hard we tried to score an A on the exam, yep. we could never do much better than a C minus. And... So much like the law, which is put before us, is meant to uphold God's standard of holiness, but it does not imply our capacity to perfectly obey it, okay? So the law does not imply a capacity to obey the law of God, but it 
It reveals our sin and it exposes us to our need for grace. And in the same way, an invitation does not imply a capacity to repent of our own quote unquote free wills. But it reminds us that our wills are in bondage to sin. So it it's it serves a damn it has a damning effect. When we preach, you must be saved, you must believe, you must put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's two things we're actually seeking to accomplish there. There's a damning effect. When we preach God's laws, there's a damning effect. There's a conviction that in and of yourself you cannot do it, you will not respond. And there then against that uh, horrible reality, we introduce people to love and mercy and grace and call them to repent, but behind the scenes we know God is fostering that repentance. So an, an invitation to believe no more implies the capacity to believe apart from divine grace than the, than the invitation to obey the law implies the capacity to do so apart from divine grace. The first part of this statement is surprisingly confusing to many Christians that God would issue an invitation that we don't have the capacity to respond to. But the second part is not particularly confusing. I don't hear anybody debating that, that God has given us laws and those laws do articulate his holy standards. But at the end of the day, what, what do the laws of God do? They drive us on our knees into they, they remind us of our sin. They, they cause us to realize that we are inadequate, that we cannot measure up to God's eternal standards. And therefore, in that humbled state, uh, we turn our eyes towards Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Mm-hmm. We trust in him. We repent of our sins genuinely. And we cry out to him for mercy. And in God's sovereign plan, he, he provides that. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a passage in the Bible that was um, that I was reminded of. I'll share a couple, but it, let's suppose you, you're still hung up on, you just really want to guard a, a limited or unlimited view of the atonement. I prefer the term particular redemption. I think some of the Baptists of, um, of England used that term hundreds of years ago. I, I think R.C. Sproul might even utilize that language from what a person told me last week. I, I didn't look into that, but it's probably accurate. So, but um, one of the, um, if you're having these conversations with people and they're like, yeah, but the atonement has to be unlimited. There's proof in the Bible that Christ paid the ransom for everyone. Okay, so a passage you would want to use to prove that position would be 1 Timothy 2.6. So 1 Timothy 2.6, I'll start with the first verse, a few verses leading up to it, 1 Timothy 2.1. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all those who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So we don't deny that. God desires for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. There is one God, the Bible says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's key. That's Mm -hmm. 1 Timothy 2, 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So I've 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, I had a good Christian friend say, there you have it. That's proof. He gave. It says mm-hmm. he desires everyone to be saved. Interesting. This person still held to a doctrine of of um, of election, uh, but but wanted to somehow uphold the doctrine of an unlimited atonement. Mm. And so they pointed to this verse. I'll give you another one that sounds very similar to that. First John. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Okay, so that's another theological word. He propitiates our sins. He expiates our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, so forth and so on. So, 
John 3.16, um, for God so loves the whole world. And this is an interesting um, this is interesting language. If the Bible says Christ was ransomed for all, or he loves the whole world, and the way we understand that is that's every single individual without exception, therefore has an equal opportunity. Again, we addressed this in our last podcast. That opens up yeah. a whole can of worms. Yeah. It makes God seem pretty impotent, actually, mm-hmm. to, to do what he desires. If I, if I desire to give you money, Chris, but I don't do it, that either implies I didn't have the opportunity or I don't have the capacity mm-hmm. to yeah. give you money. If, if the way we understand God's desire is that God is somehow yearning that every single person throughout history would come to faith in him in that common sense of the word, but it doesn't happen, then it's like, well, does, is he impotent? Is he, does he not have the capacity to do that? Is he kind of a weak God? So by by trying to guard a certain view of God's love, mm-hmm. we actually destroy a view of God's omnipotence. Yep. And I want to ask the question, is it possible that maybe we're misreading the word all and the word whole? And I think we are. So let's ask the question, does all or whole, whole world, mean all individuals without distinction, or does it actually mean all people groups? I'm going to argue for the second. So he says he is a primarily a Jewish audience who were ethnocentric in their mindset, who saw themselves historically for many generations as the covenant people of God. Mm-hmm. When the Bible talks about the whole world or all the world, or that he, he died for all, we should read that in the more broad sense of the word in that he means Jews and Gentiles. Mm-hmm. So let me give you some biblical evidence for this. In Matthew 24, 14, the Bible says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So there we have whole world language being qualified by all nations. Now let's suppose we didn't qualify whole world with the clause all nations, and we assume that the word whole world referred to every single individual who's ever lived. Well, it cannot mean that mm-hmm. because we know that not every single yeah, of the billions right. of people that have lived throughout history have sat through a gospel meeting. Mm-hmm. We know that not every single person that is even on the planet today has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ articulated. Everyone has exposure to general revelation, but not every person has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not every single person without uh, distinction, but all the nations have. Mm -hmm. There's not a nation on earth that doesn't have some gospel witness. There may be tribal groups, even today within some of the nations of the world, depending on how you break down nationhood, that have not heard the gospel. Tribal groups, small pockets of people, maybe in the Amazon jungle or whatnot. But the gospel of Jesus Christ has already been proclaimed throughout the whole world, but not necessarily to every specific individual without distinction. Or how about uh, Mark 16, 15? And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Okay, well, if he means whole creation, um, who's, who's witnessing on Mars? Who's witnessing on Venus? Uh, who's witnessing at the bottom of, of the ocean? Uh, who's witnessing to the inanimate objects of the world? Mm-hmm. So the passage cannot be read with that kind of specificity about it, meaning the whole creation, like every aspect of creation, but the whole of the, the people groups, the nations of the world Christ is commanding his people to go out and to preach the gospel to them. I'll give another one. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. Now think about this. This is first century. Saying that the gospel, uh, the word of truth, has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as 
it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God. Well, so this is first century. The writer's saying, the gospels come to you uh, and indeed it's in the whole world. So are we talking about, again, every individual without mm-hmm. extinction? Are we even talking at this point about every nation? Not like did, did, the, did the Inuit peoples who are living in now what we call Northern Canada in the first century already have gospel witness? Absolutely not. In fact, the North Americas had zero gospel witness when Paul was making this declaration in Colossians chapter one. So while we mustn't be dogmatic, it is much better to think of all or whole world language in scripture as referring to Jews and Gentiles in its most basic, mm-hmm. in its most basic intention, and beyond that to various nations and people groups that will ultimately be evangelized. But to 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 argue that the gospel has gone out to uh, all individuals is is it's it's factually it's false, <laughs> and it's not necessary either for us to if we believe that the Atonement of Christ is sufficient for the sins of the world, but it's only efficient for some, that it's better to think of it not as a limited atonement or unlimited atonement, but as a particular act of God, as part of God's redemptive plan, that against the backdrop of God's justice, holiness, love, mercy, and sovereign plan, through Christ, our sins, present tense, are atoned for. His sacrifice is applied to us in space and time. It's better to think of the atonement that way. And so hopefully that's a bit of a long answer, but hopefully that gives uh I hope it's not more confusing. No, but hopefully no, it gives not. some um some things for our listeners to think about and chances are you might need to hit rewind a few times and and re listen to a few parts. Yeah. Now I found it interesting. I was doing some research earlier this year and found out I think it's in the Philippines somewhere that there's actually still crucifixions happening. There's a guy that has has not gone the whole way, but he has literally had himself nailed to a cross something like 33 times. And he does it as some kind of way to um, earn merit to get God to answer his prayer. So I think when we talk about the sufficiency of the atonement and what Christ has accomplished, one of the things that comes to my mind is we don't want to obviously downplay. It was enough to pay for our sins. There wasn't extra waste, but there's nothing we have to add to to it in terms of suffering and whatnot. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I've I've seen that too, even in some Latin American contexts where people want to reenact the crucifixion, and whether they would even understand their own theology, really, what they're doing there is they're buying into the example theory of the atonement mm-hmm. that somehow they have to add to the all sufficient work of the Lord Jesus Christ, or somehow beat themselves, or harm themselves, or damage themselves because. They don't actually believe that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is enough. Mm-hmm. And while people can bicker about the particular scope of the atonement, for example, and they do, people, good people hold the different views on that, where we need to be united is that it was sufficient and it was enough. And mm-hmm. Christ was penalized. Christ suffered as our substitute so that our guilt and shame might be expiated that he propitiate he was the propitiation for our sin, which by the way is a biblical word. Yep. So you can use that. And people, don't use big words, Pastor. Well, it's in the Bible. Yeah. The Bible has big words, so we use big words where where necessary. So get over yourself. <laughs> define them, right? <laughs> and um, define them in the process. Help people to understand them. Here's what I want people to 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 um, uh, take home. Um, I want them to have an increased affection for Christ because of his work for them. I want them to, I want this theology to not split and divide, but to fuel passionate worship. It just seems to me, it seems to me that properly understood, the higher the view you have of God's grace and sovereignty the more loving and tender you become toward God and others, and the more passionate you become in your 
worship. There's nothing more ironic than someone who holds to the doctrines of grace that is ungracious. In fact, if you have a high view of the doctrines of grace and you're kind of a theological jerk, uh, you have not applied properly the purposes of these doctrines. So that the purposes of these doctrines are to shape the mind and in shaping the mind to shape the affections mm-hmm. and to shape our actions and our activities uh, for Christ. So the more you understand grace, and this is all part of that, uh, the more grace should ooze from every pore of your being. Awesome. That's good. Well, I'm certain many of our listeners will hit the rewind button, go back, and uh, hopefully they didn't hit the fast forward button at any point being like, I don't agree, and I'm trying to get through it. But if you did, you're now at the end, and uh, there's your chance to go back and hit rewind. Thank you, Aaron, for taking the time to explain this. Thank you also for using language. I think that's... um, helpful, not just re, re, uh, repeating and reciting things, but delving into what the language actually means. I think that's very, very helpful um, to understand it fully and from scripture. So hopefully our listeners have known by uh, now, if this is your first time joining us, we're really grateful you've listened, thankful that you've taken the time. There's a few other podcasts in this series that you might just want to skip back to the last two, um, but you can also subscribe to this podcast over on the Fight, Laugh, Feast app. And uh, if you head over to the website, Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, you'll find it. But it's called Pub TV. You can just download that in the Google Play Store, Apple Store. Also over on the pursuitofglory.org website, Aaron's personal resourcing site, you can find it. And uh, hopefully subscribe, like, share, get the word out on social media so that more people can listen. And hopefully it fosters some good discussion and also good and wholesome worship that's founded in the scripture. We hope you'll tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.